All right. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be here today. How are you? Good? All right. Well, my name's Joe. I'm on staff with H2O. If I haven't met you or if you're new to H2O, we just want to say welcome. We're glad to have you here. Um, today, we are continuing our series this summer, and we're in the book of Psalms. And we're looking at the Psalms in an unfiltered way. The Psalms are emotional, and these Psalm artists, as we see this summer, they are going before God, and they're being honest about the feelings that they feel, and they're asking God to intervene and enter into their lives. And so today, we're going to talk about um, Psalm 51, and it's going to be about repentance and forgiveness. And so just based on this topic of just repentance and asking for forgiveness, I just kind of want to ask you guys, how many of you like being right? How many of you like it when you, you're right, you were arguing with a friend, and you found out, I am right, dang it, I did it. <laughs> I, I, I love that. I love that feeling of being right and um, you know, showing someone else that I knew something more than they did. Um, but on the flip side of it, how many of you don't like being wrong? How many of you don't? Oh, good. Okay, we got some humble people in the audience. <laughs> how many of you? Um, how many of you like admitting when you're wrong? How many of you like admitting when you're wrong? Or how many of you like it when you have to apologize for something you did wrong? Anyone? No. <laughs> We, that's really hard. Nobody really likes to admit when we've done something wrong. And I know for me, growing up, I had a kind of an embarrassing story when I had to admit when I did something wrong growing up. Um, when I was about 10 years old, I did gymnastics. I told you this was going to be an embarrassing story. Um, now, I love gymnastics. When you're 10, gymnastics is great because you're just jumping on the trampoline. You're just having fun with your friends. It was great. And so after uh, gymnastics practice, I was hanging out with a friend of mine, and we were in the lobby waiting for our moms to pick us up. And um, right by us in the lobby was this candy machine. And if you remember, when you're 10, candy is like the greatest thing ever, right? Especially after you just, you know, finished working out or something like that or doing a practice, you want some sugar to help get you through the rest of your day. And so on this particular day, I didn't have any money with me. And so I said to my friend, oh, man, I wish I could have one of those pieces of candy in there. And he said to me, I don't remember his name, probably because of the story, I don't remember his name, but, but anyways, um, he said to me, oh, I can get you one. And I was like, oh, great. And I was thinking he was going to buy something for me, and he was going to be really great. Um, but he, instead of reaching his hand in his pocket, he reached his hand in the little door and pulled out a piece of candy. He stole it. <laughs> and he... And then he looked at me and said, okay, now your turn. I was like, oh, boy. <laughs> and I felt convicted because I wanted that piece of candy. He actually pulled out a red airhead. Do you guys remember airheads? They were out of control back in the 90s. They were great. He got a cherry one. It was awesome. Um, and so I felt convicted because I was like, wait a second, that's stealing. We're not supposed to do that. But then I was like, but he has an airhead. I've got to get myself one. I, I, see a, you know, I see a blue one in there. I've got to get one of those. Um, and so I reached in myself, and I grabbed an airhead, too. And as soon as I grabbed it, I felt guilty. I knew I had done something wrong. And even after I ate it, I felt even worse. <laughs> um, and, and I felt really bad. And my mom, eventually, she picked me up. And she knew, she saw my face, that it was long. She was like, hey, what's going on, Joe? And I told her, I said, Mom... I stole a piece of candy. I feel terrible. And, and she said, 
hey, you can't do that. You know, that's stealing. You need to go and you need to pay that back. And so she said, the next practice, you need to take some money with you and you need to go to the owner of the gym and tell him what you did. My mom, she wanted us to be, you know, people of character and really do the best thing in any situation. And so I did. And so next practice, I went to go see the owner of the gym, Mr. Johnson. That was his name, Mr. Johnson. Really nice guy, old guy. And um, I walked up to um, his office and... I handed him two quarters, and I said, Mr. Johnson, I want you to know, last practice, Billy stole two pieces of candy. (laughs) No, I didn't say that. I said, Mr. Johnson, I stole a piece of candy last practice, and I just want to apologize, and I want to pay you with these two quarters. And Mr. Johnson, he was so sweet, and he just said, oh, don't worry about it. It's fine. No big deal. Keep your money. Thank you for apologizing. Don't do it again, but thank you for apologizing. Um, And he was super nice. And I felt after this just so relieved. I felt so thankful that he forgave me, and I felt so at peace about the situation after that. And when I think about and when I think back on that story, I think what's amazing is that's what God does for us, you know? Even when we sin and we make mistakes, if we go to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us. And he wants to forgive us. And when we talk about sin, you know, sin leads to death. In the Bible, it talks about how sin is anything that separates us from God's love and can lead to ultimately to destruction and pain. And the Bible also talks about how sin is a crime. When we sin, we're actually committing a crime against God. And so because of that, someone has to pay for our sin. Just like in my candy story, someone had to pay for my piece of candy. And Mr. Johnson didn't accept my two quarters. The reality is Mr. Johnson actually paid for my candy. He decided to pay for it. He didn't need me to. In the same way, we can never pay off the sin that's in our lives, and so God pays it off for us, which is amazing. And all God wants us to do is to repent. All he wants us to do is go to him and admit what we've did wrong. And that's, that's really the theme of today is understanding what does repentance look like. Because really, when we look at repentance, repentance just means turning back to God. And it's about humility, it's about openness, and it's about saying, I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to keep growing. And I've seen in my life, not just, not just in my life, but in the lives of others, this impact and how repenting or not repenting can really affect your life. Uh, I had a opportunity growing up to be a part of a church plant um, with my family. And the church was great. God was really moving in the plant. Um, But about the time I hit high school, the church really started to fall apart. Um, In the same year, we saw two men, two pastors, have to step down because of moral failures. And this was really hard. This was really difficult. Both men, they jeopardized their families, their careers, their reputations because of the sin they committed. And so both men were in the same boat, but both men made two different choices that affected their lives moving forward. One of the men decided to, instead of owning up to the decisions and the things he made, he made excuses and defended himself, and he ended up leaving his family and, you know, leaving the ministry, and his reputation has never been repaired after that. The other man, after the events happened in his life, He really took to heart what God was doing and asked God to forgive him and change him. And God really blessed him in so many ways. Um, Now his marriage is so much better than it's been. Um, God is using him in a mighty way. And 
I really think the root of that was because of that decision to repent and be open before God and rebuild the relationships that were broken. It's hard. It's really hard, but I've seen the benefit of it. And so us today, we all have a choice, guys. At some point in our lives, we're going to you know, we're, we're sinners. That's who we are. We're a part of a fallen nature. We're a part of a fallen world. And we have to make a choice to either follow God or are we going to continue to allow sin to destroy the lives of uh, our lives and the lives of those around us. And so that's the choice that we have today. And so we're going to look at today a story of another man, a guy named David. David, um, we've talked about him a lot this summer. He was king of Israel, and we're going to look at a time in David's life where he made a huge failure, huge, an epic failure that really affected his life, his family, and his relationships as well. And so the psalm that we're actually going to look at today is Psalm 51, but we're not going to turn there first. We're actually going to go, if you want to turn to Second uh, Samuel chapter 11. And what we're going to do with this psalm, what's unique about this psalm is this, that we actually get to see the full scope of this psalm. We get to see the story around the psalm and what God is doing in David's life and why he ended up writing the words that he wrote for this psalm. And so if you want to turn there, 2 Samuel chapter 11. If um, you don't have your Bibles, you can grab a Bible around you or it'll be on the screen as well. And so we'll start reading verse 1, chapter 11. In the spring of of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, his servant, with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Amorites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, and he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. So to give a little context to this passage, this passage begins following some amazing events in David's life. He is at the height of his career as king. God has blessed him. He's won many battles. He's, um, he is really growing in his wealth and fame. And at this point, the passage talks about how when normally when kings go out to battle, David stayed home. He reached so much success where he didn't have to go out to war. And so he's just kind of walking around the castle, you know, maybe in his underpants. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> but he's just roaming around. And usually, in my experience, ladies, men, when we have nothing to do, we kind of get bored and we just, you know, not many good things happen in that moment. And so David, he's walking around and he looks and he sees a woman bathing. And in verse 3, it continues. And so if you look at verse 3, it says this, And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house. And then the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Okay, so David, he sees this woman bathing. He gets excited, asks about her, finds out she's the wife of another man, Uriah, who's actually away at war. And he calls her, and they sleep together. And then, as it happens, she's pregnant. 
this is, this is hard. This is getting complicated. Um, if you know anything about Israel's history during this time, um, adultery was considered to be a capital punishment. And, and David commits major adultery. And obviously, her husband's at war. Whenever he comes home, he can do math. He'll figure out, this isn't my kid. What the heck? <laughs> and so David comes up with a plan. And so the, the story goes, he sends Uriah, her husband, back home. And he wants to see Uriah. Wow, he must be feeling great about himself. He's going to see the king. He's like, this is great. Little does he know what's about to happen. And so David speaks with Uriah, and he asks him, how's the war going? Oh, okay, that's great. He asks him about the experiences that he's going through. And then he says to Uriah, great, you've done a great job, Uriah. Why don't you go home? Why don't you go home and relax Put your feet up, watch some Netflix, chill, do whatever you need to do. Just, just enjoy yourself. You've done a great job. And so Uriah goes, goes home. Or he leaves the king's castle and he doesn't go home. He actually sleeps on the king's steps. And David's like, what the heck? Aren't you a man of war? Aren't you excited to go home and see your wife? I guarantee you he was. If, if you've ever talked to people who've been in war or been away on deployments or things like that, the first thing they want to do when they go home is see their lady. And this guy decides not to go home. He has the opportunity to go home, and he doesn't. And David's like, what the heck? What are you doing, Uriah? And Uriah is such a good man, and it's so amazing to see what he says back to David. He just basically says, hey, David, we're still at war, and I'm still serving you, and I'm thinking about the men and my friends who are on the battlefield, who are fighting and dying for this war, for this cause. I can't go home to my wife. I can't sleep with my wife knowing that. He's like, I got to defend you. I got to defend the castle while I'm here. This is a good man. This is a good man of integrity. And so then David thinks, okay, maybe I'll get him drunk, and then he'll just stumble his way home. Um, and so he tries to. And so he, he brings Uriah back that night, feeds him a great feast, fills him with wine, and says, okay, now go home. And he's hoping he'll just stumble back home, and he doesn't. He sleeps again at the king's steps. Well, this is getting very difficult for David, as we can see. And so David then moves to plan B to try to remove Uriah from the problem altogether. And so the next day, David goes to Uriah and gives him a letter. And in the letter are instructions to Joab, the general of David's army. And in the letter, what it says is to Joab, it says this. It says, Joab, I want you to put Uriah in the hardest fighting today. And when you guys go into battle and you fight the enemy, I want you to step back so that Uriah keeps charging and it is killed. And that's what happens. Uriah, the troops go out. Uriah is the only one left in the battle, and he's slaughtered by the Amorites. So Uriah is just another casualty of war, seemingly. And so from there, David calls Bathsheba to be his wife. And so in verse 26, it says, Then the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. She lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. 
the coast is clear. David's plan worked. He's good to go. However, David forgot about one major thing. There's another character in this story. There's someone who saw the entire event happened as it is and isn't happy about it. And in the next line we find out, it says this, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God saw everything that David did, and it displeased him, and he was mad. And so God sends Nathan, the prophet, to David to speak to him. And so Nathan goes to David, and it's interesting what Nathan does. Nathan doesn't just go right after and attack David and say, how could you do this? Instead, what, David, what Nathan does is he shares with David a story. And the goal of the story is to get David to convict himself and to see exactly what he did. And so here's how the story goes. It's in chapter 12, starting in verse 1. It says this. So Nathan's speaking to David. He says this. David, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little old lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him, with his children. It used to eat of the morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come with him, uh, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So Nathan shares a story to David about how this rich man and this poor man lived near each other, and the rich man had many flocks, and the poor man just had one lamb that he loved and cared for. And when a traveler came to town to the rich man, instead of the rich man killing one of his own lambs, he killed the lamb of the poor man. And David, when he heard this, he was angry. And in the next verse it says, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. David was so angry. If you, if you don't know, David was actually a shepherd before he became king. And so this story of caring for the lamb, he would have totally related to. He, it, the Bible talks about how David actually fought um, lions and wolves to defend his lamb and his flock um, from attacks. Um, and so he would have definitely felt what this poor man would have felt. And he would say, you know, how could he do this? This is horrible. He had no pity. But then Nathan turns the story on David and says this. He says, David, you are the man. You are the man. Just as you, the rich man took the lamb from the poor man, David took the wife of Uriah from him. And so next in the story, God shares with David his frustration. And he says to David, David, I have given you everything you could have ever wanted. I've given you wives. I've given you power. I've given you the kingdom of Israel. I've helped you defeat all of your enemies. And if that wasn't enough, I would have given you way more. But instead, you have taken Uriah's wife and you've killed him with the sword. And so from there, God lays out some consequences for David because of his actions. And the first thing God says is that... um, just as David struck Uriah with the sword, the sword shall never leave 
David's house. And evil shall come from within his own house. And just as David stole Uriah's wife, David's wives will be taken from him. And taken, and that person will be someone that David knows. And if you know the rest of this story later on in this book, these events actually do happen to David. And it's so horrific what happens to him, his family, and his wives. And, you know, after God brings a sentence on David, I'm sure David is just so broken. He's probably on his knees just crying. And all he can say next is, I have sinned against the Lord. David sees the reality of his sin. And then Nathan says to him in the next verse, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. So David admits his sin. He goes to God. And God forgives him. But in addition to all the other consequences, the child that him and Bathsheba bore is going to die. Just so sad. And when I, when I look at this story, you know, and I've read this story many times over the years, um, it's frustrating. It really is. I mean, like, and I think what frustrates me the most is um, what happens to David's family. That's probably the thing that frustrates me the most, because it's just like, this guy committed the sin. This, ch- this baby didn't do anything. This, you know, his wives didn't do anything. Why did this have to happen? And as I was kind of thinking through it, um, I realized kind of two things. I think there's two things this story can show us. Um, first is that this story shows us the reality of sin. This story shows us the reality of what sin really is. Um, Like I said before, sin leads to death. It leads to all kinds of evil and destruction. Um, And I think often we can think that, oh, why would God care about, you know, the little things I do? We don't realize the impact that sin can have on our families and on our world that we live in. I was just looking up um, recently, I came across an article, and it was talking about the influence of pornography on our culture and on our world. And some of the most searched terms about pornography are sexual assault, rape, incest, all these evil and disgusting things. And we don't realize that that has impacted our society. Look at how much sexual assault has risen over the years. And I think a lot of it has to do with this sin in our culture and how it's affecting our families. And not just, not just sexual sin, but I've talked to many people, you know, some people in this room who've had family members who are alcoholic, and it really affects the family in a major way. Sin just doesn't affect you. It destroys everything around you. It is destructive. And along with that, too, God hates sin and wants to destroy it. He's going to judge sin, and one day we're all going to stand before, the Bible talks about how we're going to stand before God and give an account for the things that we've done. And God wants to put an end to sin. And some people have said to me in the past, like, oh, only God can judge me. I can do whatever I want, only because only God, you can't judge me, only God can judge me. When that's pretty foolish, because when you look even at this story, this shows that God is the perfect judge, and he's the perfect witness. So he's the perfect judge, jury, executioner, (laughs) which is so frightening when you think about it in that perspective. God cares about defeating sin because he knows how destructive it is and how it can destroy us in our lives. And so I think this story shows us the reality of that. But along with that, 
This story, I think, shows us the reality of God's grace. God is, even in our sin, God is so ready and just to forgive us of our sins. Um, I think even just looking at the story, like David committed adultery and was a murderer, and then he went to God and God forgave him. God said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forgive you of this. There's still consequences, but I'm going to forgive you of what you've done. And I've come across people who've said to me um, over the years, um, oh, so why don't I just do whatever I want? And then at the end of my life, when I'm on my deathbed, I'll ask God for forgiveness, and he has to forgive me then, right? And here's the thing. Here's a couple of responses to that. One, God knows your heart. God knows your true motivations. He doesn't just see the actions we commit. He actually knows our heart. He wants our hearts. Because if, if, we, if we say those things that we'll just do whatever we want, and then at the end we'll ask God for forgiveness, that's actually manipulation. That's not love. David, when you look at this story, David wanted God. David wanted his relationship with God. That was the most valuable thing to him. And from here, what's cool is we get into, and we're going to get into the psalm now, we're going to see how much David wanted God and the value and how much value he put into his relationship with God. And so if you guys want to turn to Psalm 51, we're going to see after Nathan leaves, David goes into his room and he begins to write this psalm and the impact of it, of his mistakes and what he has done. And so Psalm 51, we're going to look at three keys that David did that led him to repentance. And hopefully it'll show us what we need to do when we repent and we go before God in our sin. And so the first thing David does is he seeks to restore his relationship with God. He seeks to restore his relationship with God. And we see this in verse 1 of Psalm 51. It says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. So David goes and seeks to restore his relationship with God. And he goes to God. He knows he can't hide from him, so he says, I'm going to go to you. I'm going to go to you, God. I see who I am, and I need you. And I think often, instead of going to God when we sin, we can be like Adam and Eve in the garden after they sin, and we try to hide from God, and we tend to run to other stuff. So whether it's relationships, whether it's drugs, alcohol, sex, whatever it might be in our lives, even just distractions— we tend to go to those things rather than dealing with a major problem and go to God and seek his help and his guidance. I know for me, sometimes I can just go and turn on Netflix and just try to turn off my brain when I'm in pain or when I'm in a hard spot. Do you ever distract yourself when you're in pain? I think a lot of that can come down to, obviously there's times where it's good to shut off and you know, work out or do something else, but I think we need to deal with the emotions we're feeling and what God's doing in our lives. We need to run to God rather than away from God. And David does this because he knows that if he runs to God, that's the only way to restore and heal the brokenness in his relationship. And so David goes to God, and the next thing he does is confesses his sin. And so verse 2, it says this, "'Watch me thoroughly from my iniquities and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin.'" Is ever before me against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in the truth in the inward being, 
and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with the hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out my iniquities. So David goes to God and he confesses his sin. And he says, you know, God, forgive me, cleanse me. And confession is all about admitting, admitting what you did, admitting what we've done wrong. And I like what David does here. He talks about how sin has made him dirty. He feels dirty. He wants God to wash him. And I don't think that's a mistake. I think that's a really accurate description of what sin does. Have you ever done something and felt dirty within your soul? When I stole that piece of candy, I felt dirty. <laughs> I, felt, I felt, man, I did something wrong. And, and I, I think that's because I knew I broke my conscience. I stole something. I heard another story from another extreme um, from, about this guy, and he had an affair on his wife. And he went home, and he tried to take a shower. And no matter how much he washed himself, he never felt clean. No matter how much soap he used, whatever he did, he never felt clean within his soul. He felt dirty. The Apostle Paul talks about this in um, his letters to the Romans, how God has given us each a conscience. And he's put it on our hearts to know what is right and wrong. And when we break that, we break his law, and we feel wrong, we feel dirty. But David points out to how God can clean us, and he's, he wants God to clean him as he confesses his dirtiness and his sin to him. And he says in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold in me a willing spirit. So David wants God to clean him so that he can restore him. And he do, does this to get into our final point, which is to, that God would transform him. That God would transform him. And so first David goes to God, he confesses his sin, and then he trusts that God can transform him. And we see this in verse 13. It says this, Then I'll teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from the blood guiltness, O God. O God, of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O oh Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifice and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So David asks God to change him. He, he seeks transformation. And transformation is all about change and seeking growth, asking God to make us new. And the first reason why David asked for this, it says it in verse, 10, verse uh, 13, it says, then I'll teach transgressors your, your ways. And what's cool about this is David really wants to be set free from sin so that he can help others with their sin and with their struggle. And I think that's so true. Some of us have been stuck maybe in our sin, and we continue to go back to our old habits, and we're like, man, I am never going to get through this. I'm not good enough. But the reality is, that's, that's what the enemy wants to tell you. He wants to break you down, but God wants to build you up and use you. I've seen in this church so often where people have struggled with pornography, addictions, alcoholism, whatever it is, um, 
and they've gone to God, God has healed them, and then they're able to help others as well with their struggles. And that's great, and that's what David wants. And along with that, too, David wants freedom from his past. Look at, it says, um, deliver me from blood guiltness. Do you ever think about your past and just cringe at some of the things you've done or some of the things you've thought before? I've been there. I've, I've been in that spot. And I'm like, why, why do I keep thinking about this thing in my past? Why do I keep thinking about this? I'm not those things. And the enemy wants to tell us we are those things, but we're not. David wants to be set free from this. And so it's not that we totally bury the things of our past and ignore it, but he wants to be able to be in a place where he can think about it and know that's who I was. This is who I am. And this is what we need. We need to be forgiven so that we can stand like David before God in his courts and know we're made clean, that God has made us new. And some of us maybe in this place can't stand before God or go to God. Maybe we hide from God because of the sin in our lives. We feel like God will be mad at us or we're ashamed of who we are and the things we've done. And I want to tell you, if we go to God and we repent, he can make you clean. And you can stand before his throne knowing that you have Jesus' righteousness and not your own. Jesus paid for your sin, and not just for you or me, but for David as well. God has restored God did restore David. And if you know the end of his story, um, the next few chapters, David goes through a really hard time. His family really falls apart. A lot of things really go wrong. All the things that God predicted and said would happen did happen. But near the end of David's life, God restored him. He made him king again. Um, his house was at peace. And he had a new son named, named Solomon who also walked with God as well. And David was called a man after God's own heart and walked with God the rest of his life. And along with that, too, God allowed for David to be in the genealogy of Jesus. David was the descendant of Jesus, and so Jesus actually was the person who paid for David's sin. He paid for David's and ours as well because of his sacrifice that was perfect, and God wants to do that with us as well. As we go to him, he wants to give us his righteousness and take our sin. And so as we close today, guys, um, I have to ask, and you have to ask yourself, what does this story say about you? What can you learn from this? Where do you fit, fit in this story? You know, I think some of us in this room, maybe we just need to restore our relationships with God. Maybe some of us have felt broken. Maybe some of us have felt like, man, I don't even know if I can talk with God right now, if he'd even want to see me um, or even talk with me. But here's the thing. God is with you. God already knows what you've done, and he is chasing after you. The fact that you're here today is showing that God is chasing after you and wants a deeper relationship with you. Second, some of us need to confess some sin in our lives. Maybe there's some weight or something on your shoulders that's been holding you down, and it's time to confess that. It's time to give that to God and give that to others so that others can help you as well. And then finally, some of us need to know that God can transform you. He's not in love with a future version of yourself. He's in love with you, and he's here to help you and guide you along the way. All we need to do is go to him and seek his help and his guidance. And God can transform you. God transformed David, and he can transform you as well. I heard, just to close, I heard a story about this woman named Carla Faye Tucker. If you don't know Carla Faye Tucker, she uh, was um, sentenced to death in 1995. Um, she was in prison. Um, and in the early 1980s, uh, she committed a horrible crime. She 
um, helped murder two people, and the crime was so bad that they sentenced her to death. Um, it was just so horrific. Um, and while she was in prison, she met God, and God changed her life. She was a completely new woman. After this, go Google Carla Faye Tucker. You can see a photo of her at her trial and a photo after she accepted Jesus. It looks like two different people. And I think it's because of this change. She repented before God. And she was talking one time about this experience and talking about how God forgave her because someone was asking about forgiveness and what she learned. And she just talked about how when God gave her forgiveness, she began to soar. She felt in a place where she knew God went down and reached in and grabbed all the evil within her life and plucked that out and gave her his righteousness. And so she was offering others, what was cool with her story, she offered others a chance to receive that as well. And she was like, if God can heal me and fix me, he can do that same thing for you. And after many appeals, she ended up being executed. Um, but she talked about how even though she, received, she understood that she did something wrong and she had to pay for that, she knew God forgave her and that there was hope for her, that Jesus was preparing a place for her um, and that he was making her new and using her story for his glory. And so in the same way, guys, God can do that with you. God can restore you. No matter where you've been, God loves you and cares for you. And um, I hope this week you can receive that and know that. And as we go and repent to him and as we worship, um, know that today, that you can stand before God clean from anything you've done. So with that, guys, let's pray as the band comes up.